0: The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Well, today we are wrapping up our series on the life of David. And if you've been with us, then for the last four weeks you know what we've been doing is studying the life of the man who would ultimately become a King David, arguably Uh, ancient Israel's greatest king. And uh, today as we look at this final event in the life of David, this final story that we're going to look at together today, we're going to be reminded of something um, that absolutely is relevant to every single one of us that are here today. It's relevant to you right now in this season and in this situation of your life, or it's going to be relevant to you in the future at some point in your life. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take this very common phenomenon, this thing that every single one of us have experienced at some point, We're going to place that into a brand new context that hopefully is going to help all of us to view our lives and to view our circumstances and to view um, what happens in life and what we experience in life maybe a, a little bit differently than we normally do. And the thing that we're going to be reminded of today is simply this, that life, right, life rarely turns out. As we planned, life rarely goes as planned. Life rarely goes as anticipated. Right? Plans are great. Um, I love plans. I'm a planner. I'm married to a planner. A lot of you are planners. Plans are great. Everybody should have a plan. And as great and as wonderful as plans are, the reality is is that reality is actually greater than our plans. That reality always wins out over our plans. And when life doesn't go as planned, either because of things that we do or because of things that other people do, things that we experience in life, it's in that moment that you and I are reminded of something that every single one of us that we know, and we know this logically, but the truth is is that we often forget this truth emotionally. And that truth is simply this, that it's in those moments of life, right? In those moments of life when reality is greater than our plans, that the ways of God The ways of God, they are most unappealing and they are seemingly irrelevant when we are angry, when we are isolated, and when we're afraid. The ways of God. So that means for all of us who are here this morning, you would say that, that you are, that we are followers of Jesus. For us, that means the way that we see Jesus living in the New Testament and the way that Jesus calls us to live, right? The ways of God. That's what that means. And for those of you who are here this morning and maybe, um, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're a little bit more of a, a, a theist um, because you kind of just have this concept uh, of this thing that you, you call God. And so for you, uh, maybe this is a little bit more difficult to conceptualize because um, you kind of write a lot of this stuff off as karma. Or you write it off as as random circumstance or chance. But however it is that that you think of God, um, it's in these moments of life. When we are angry, when we're isolated, and when we're afraid. The the ways of God, um, it's when we experience those emotions in life that they can make even the most disciplined and devout person among us. It can make us crash through Absolutely, positively, every boundary that we set up for ourselves in life, every relational boundary, every moral boundary, every professional boundary, every financial boundary, those three emotions can make us abandon everything it is that we say that we believe. In fact, the truth is this. The chances are, if you actually think back right now to your greatest regret in life, more than likely one where a combination of those three emotions were at play when that happened. Chances are that regret in your life, it actually came from a time when you were super angry and so you did something, or you were isolated and you felt alone, or you were just plain and simply scared. And see, the truth is, and we all know this, that those three emotions, when we feel any one or a combination of those three emotions, those emotions can create in us almost a sense of panic that will lead us to do just about anything if we think that we can actually make those emotions stop. And those three things, they compel us. They compel us to act. They compel us to do something. And see, the truth is, it's not that we don't know the outcome of acting on those emotions, but in those times, when we feel those emotions, we start discounting the outcome of acting on those emotions. And we say things to ourselves like, well, nobody cares about that stuff anymore. Nobody does that stuff anymore. That's kind of old-fashioned, right? Nobody thinks that way. Nobody's going to know. After the way they treated me, I'm justified. After what they've done to me, I'm allowed to do whatever it is that I need to do. See, the truth is generally as a result of that, things don't get better, they end up getting worse. Right? Our lives don't get less complicated, they get more complicated. There's not less regret in life, there's actually more regret in life. And we end up angrier, we end up lonelier, and we end up scared. er And so, my goal for all of us this morning is actually a very simple one it's that when you find yourself experiencing any one or all three of those emotions in life, as you find yourself moving down a path and you look at the three or four different choices that you have or perhaps the one or two options that are in front of you, that if there is absolutely anything inside of you whatsoever that just causes you to wince, even the slightest bit, if there's even the, the least amount of anxiety that you face about whatever it is that you are considering in life right now, that you would just pause for a moment. Because what I want for you as your pastor and what God wants for you is in that moment for you to opt for the way of Jesus. And there are all kinds of incredible illustrations of this happening in Scripture. And the one that I want to take us to this morning is a little bit less well-known but it's one that I think is incredibly important for us to talk about. It's one that occurs in the life of David, and it's one I think the context of is deeply relevant as we talk about these ideas of anger, isolation, and fear, and what they push all of us to do. And again, the context of this event is tremendously important for us to understand. If you were with us about two weeks ago, you know that we looked at um, what is arguably the most famous event in the life of David, and this is when David actually defeats um, Goliath. And when David defeats Goliath, he becomes an overnight sensation because David kills Goliath in front of the entire Israelite army. And so everybody all of a sudden is talking about how great David is, and nobody's really talking about King Saul anymore whatsoever. And, and so Samuel, who records all of these events for us that we've been reading about as we move through the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel actually tells us this. He says, In everything he did, referring to David, he had great Success. And when Saul, when the king saw how successful David was, Saul was actually jealous of David. Samuel said that he was actually afraid of David. But see, all of Israel and all of Judea, they actually loved David because David was the one who was leading them on their campaigns. And so Saul realizes he has this big problem on his hands. And so Saul actually comes up with a plan, and he thinks he's discovered a way that he can control David. And so what Saul decides to do is he's going to marry off one of his daughters to David because he thinks if he can make David his son-in-law, then perhaps he'll be able to control him. And so when Saul, when King Saul goes to David and say, David, I would love for you to marry into my family, David actually responds in a very interesting way to King Saul because he says, King Saul, um, that is such an incredible offer. But see, the problem is, I'm just a lowly shepherd boy, and my family is not a very important family, and I'm actually not worthy of the honor of marrying into your family. Well, pretty soon, word of this also gets out, and now everybody in Israel is talking about how incredibly humble David is. And as David gets more and more popular, Saul gets more and more jealous. But then a different one of Saul's daughters, actually a daughter by the name of Michael, she falls in love with David. And King Saul thinks, okay, maybe my plan's going to work after all. Because when David goes to Saul and he says, hey, remember that offer you made me about becoming a part of your family? Um, Saul says, yeah, I remember, David, but I remember you're also a lowly shepherd boy from a very uh, not important family. And so, David, the the bride price, right? The price, the amount of money, David, you're going to have to pay me as king for the right to marry my daughter, the bride price, that's actually not a sum of money. So don't worry about that, David. The bride price to marry my daughter is 100 dead Philistines. David, you have to go out and kill 100 Philistines if you want the right to marry my daughter. Because King Saul is thinking this. He's thinking, I'm not going to raise my hand against David. I'm going to let the Philistines do that. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. So David and his men, they go out and they end up killing 200 Philistines. And they bring the evidence of that back to King Saul... And that actually makes things even worse for David. Because when Saul discovers that the Lord was actually with David, and when he understands that his daughter, Michael, actually loves David, which means he's not going to be able to control her to manipulate him, right? Saul, he becomes even more afraid of David, and he remains David's enemy until the very end of his life. Now, here's why I want us to look at this particular story as we talk about this issue of anger, isolation, and fear today. Because, because David has a huge, huge problem on his hands, right? And it's not David's fault, is it? I mean, David never asked to be king, and, and the whole Goliath thing, I mean, David knows this isn't about him. He's just serving his country. He's just doing what it is that people are asking him to do. He's just doing what it is that he, he, he feels that God is, is leading him to do. And yet, no matter what it is that David does, it seems like his situation just goes from bad to worse. No matter what it is that David does, things just get worse and worse and worse for him. And finally, things escalate to the point, quite literally, where one day David is in the palace, and King Saul picks up a spear, and he actually tries to murder David in the palace. And David has to run. He has to flee. He has to leave the palace and go hide. And Saul... Saul, from that point on, Samuel tells us, he never loses his desire to actually kill David. Saul is jealous of David because Saul wants his son, Jonathan, to be the next king. And see, as long as David is alive, Saul realizes that David is a threat to Saul's kingdom He's a threat to Saul's dynasty. He's a threat to what it is that Saul wants to leave for his family. And so David, he has to run out of the kingdom. He has to leave the city. He has to go hide out in the desert. And now all of a sudden, David, this hero, is an outlaw. And over time, about 600 men who are loyal to David, they find their way to David in the middle of the desert. And this is where our story picks up today in 1 Samuel chapter 24 which is on page 458 in those Bibles that are in front of you. We're going to read this together, beginning in verse 1, which tells us this. That after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told that David... Is in the desert of Engedi. Now, this is a picture uh, of what the desert of Engedi looks like. This is the actual desert of Engedi. And so you can see um, that not only is it a, a desert type region, uh, it's actually a, a very mountainous and it's a very hilly region. And there's one kind of a specific path that moves through this desert. So there's one very obvious um, way to make your way through the desert. And so, verse 2, um, you know Saul. He takes three thousand chosen men from all of Israel, and he sets out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. That was a particular place in the desert of Angeti, which actually looks like this. It's just a very hilly, mountainous area. Um, there's you know not a whole lot there. There's just some rocks and a bunch of caves. And every once in a while, a little bit of, of grass. And so David or Saul is thinking, okay, I've got this is the perfect opportunity. I've got David cornered. There's only one way through here. I know where he's at. I'm, I'm finally going to be able to eliminate this this threat to to me and to my family and to this kingdom. I'm going to finally be able to eliminate this guy David. And so in the next verse, verse three, Saul he came to the sheep pens along the way. And a cave was there, and Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. So a little bit of random Bible trivia for you right there, right? One of the only sections of Scripture anywhere that ever mentions anything about somebody actually going to the bathroom. So file that one away um, for some random trivia night. And so Saul stops. You've got to try to picture this in your mind. Just don't picture it too much. Um, Saul's got 3,000 soldiers All their horses, all the support personnel, they're moving. This convoy is going through that path in the desert of Angeti. And Saul calls for a potty stop. And so everybody stops. He gets off his mule. And he goes up and he finds, he's looking at a bunch of these caves. And so he goes into one of these caves. His bodyguards follow him. They stand outside the cave. And then the verse the next part of the verse tells us this. That David and his men are far back in the cave, and the first thing you have to do is say, okay, what are the odds of this? I mean, honestly, what are the odds of this happening? And that's the obvious question, isn't it? I mean, and see, and this is where, right, this is where, um, uh, you know, those of us who are Christians, right, we start to kind of speak in a little bit of Christianese, and we say things like, this is such a God moment, Like, like this is such a God thing right? And those people who are not religious, they kind of look at us like, what, what in the world does that even mean? I don't even know what that means. It, well, it means this. It means, it means the stars are aligned. It means everything's fallen into place. It means that this is the perfect scenario because, because if ever God were to perform a miracle on behalf of David, this is obviously the miracle that God has performed for David. I mean, after all, what could be more obvious than this? Because I, David, have been anointed king. But see, I know that if I'm ever going to be king, then that means the current king has to be removed. And here I am hiding in a cave and in walks the soon-to-be former king of Israel. And so apparently what happened was this. David and his men are moving through this very same valley, the same area of the desert. And his scouts, which would be the men who would be in front of and behind the main group, they bring word to David and they tell David, hey, King Saul and his army, they're coming through this very same way. And so David says, okay, scatter everybody. Go run and hide. We're just going to let Saul and his men pass through. And then we'll come out. We're going to head south. We'll backtrack. And Saul will never even know we're here. We'll be safe. Everything will be fine. I mean, David has no way of knowing that Saul's going to have to go to the bathroom. Right? And so when Saul calls for his potty stop, he's looking up. And he's got a dozen or more caves to choose from. And Saul doesn't just happen to go into a cave where some of David's men are hiding. Oh no, he goes into the very cave where David and David's best men are hiding. And see, David, right, he's far back in the cave. And he can see everything that's going on. Saul, he's walking to the entrance of the cave. He's silhouetted by the the light outside of the cave. He can't see anything. Because he's, he's blinded to everything that's going on inside. But David's men and David, they're far back in the cave. Their eyes have adjusted. They can see everything that's happening. They see Saul walk into this cave by himself. They see that he is completely alone, that there's nobody with him. And they see Saul as he takes off his royal robe, and he sets it to the side. And David's men start talking to David. They start elbowing David, and they say, can you, can you believe this? Look what's happening right now i mean david's men knew exactly what this was they saw this situation for exactly what it is and they say this to david in verse four the men say to david this is the day david that the lord spoke of when he said to you that i will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish and see what they're referring to is this because god actually never said that That's important for you to know. God actually never said that, but what they're speaking of is this. David and his men, right, they would travel around in the desert, and every night they would have a campfire. And they were tired. And they were poor. They were outlaws. They had no place to call home. Every single one of these men had left their family somewhere else in Judea. They're all alone. It was a very dangerous and lonely life. And David would say to them every night, just be patient. Just stick with me. Don't leave. Don't give up. Just stick with me, because one day when I'm the king, I will reward you. God has promised me that one day I'm going to be the king, and if you stick with me until then, then I promise you I will reward you. And so David's men are saying to David, David, this is that day. This is the day that you spoke of. This is that day, because David pictured it. I mean, all 3,000 of these men, they saw King Saul walk into the cave and picture this in your mind, David. Now they're going to see you walk out of that very same cave. David, they will pledge their lives to you. And David, you will be. You will be, David, the king. So David decides to do unto Saul as Saul intended to do unto him, and, and who could blame him, right? David's just going to do, who would blame me? David's just going to do what Saul intended to do to me. I'm just going to do what he intended to do unto me. I mean, who could, who could blame me for doing that? Nobody would blame me. I've been a fugitive. I, I've been on the run. I mean, how, 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 could you, how could you not get caught up in the emotion of, of this moment? I mean, here is my enemy in this cave, literally in the most vulnerable position imaginable. And the text tells us, in the very next line, that David, he crept up unnoticed. So right here, we're going to pause for just a moment. Everybody kind of eyes up here. Don't read any farther in the story. Because we all know what's going to happen next, don't we? David is about to return evil for evil, which makes sense especially in this day and this age in which David lived. And remember, David was a soldier, right? David was a warrior. I mean, this is what David was trained to do. This was David's sweet spot. He would be able to creep up behind King Saul without King Saul ever even knowing what had happened to him. All Saul would feel would be a sharp tug of the hair on the back of his head, and that would be the last breath that Saul would ever take. In this world. And there we are. That's our dilemma. That's the tension that every single one of us experience at some point in our life. Because every time we are angry, isolated, and afraid, the ways of God are most unappealing. And they are seemingly irrelevant. And see, the problem with returning evil for evil, the problem with getting even, is that it makes you even with somebody that you don't even like. But see, as David is creeping up on King Saul, something happens. Something happens in David's heart, and he realizes, listen, I'm about to murder the king. I'm about to assassinate my king. I'm about to murder God's king. What, What in the world am I thinking? I mean, if I murder the king, this is going to end up being my story forever. And see, again, this is where we get trapped, isn't it? Because was this justified? I mean, was David justified in in killing the king? Well, everybody around David would say, yes, absolutely. Absolutely you are, David, because he's just trying to kill you. Would David's friends, with the people that are with David, would they tell David that he is justified in doing what he's about to do? And they would say, absolutely you are, David. But was it the right thing? Was it the virtuous thing? Was it the way of Jesus? Absolutely not. David was about to add to his story a part of his story that he would be embarrassed about, that he would regret for the rest of his life. I mean, think about this. Grandpa David, Grandpa David, tell us about how it is that you became the king of Israel. Well, see, your great-grandfather, he was in a cave and he was going to the bathroom and, and he couldn't see anything. But me, I was back in the cave and my eyes adjusted and so I could see everything that was going on. And so I snuck up behind your great-grandfather and I... And that's how I became the king of Israel. Oh, grandpa, you're so brave. Right? I mean, David is about to add to his story a part of his story that he's going to regret for the rest of his life. Even though it was justified. Even though. It's what everybody else expected David to do. Even though it was arguably. What King Saul deserved. Because every time. Every single time. We are angry. We are isolated. Or we're afraid. The ways of God are most. Unappealing. And seemingly Irrelevant. Back to our story. David crept up unnoticed, and then Samuel tells us he cut off a corner of Saul's robe, right? And so the men who are far back in the cave that are watching all this take place, they cannot believe what they see David doing. That instead of reaching for Saul's head, he reaches for his robe that Saul discarded. He cuts a corner of it off and then he creeps quietly back to where his men are at. And afterwards, verse 5 tells us that David was actually conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. Because attacking anything that a king owned was like attacking the king himself. And he says to his men, David actually says this to his men in verse 6, "...the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord." In other words, David is saying, listen, I have no business trying to replace what it is that God has put in place. Now, when David actually says this to his men, David's men look at him and they said, okay, David, that's fine if that's your problem. But see, this is not our problem. We are more than happy to do what it is that you're unwilling to do. Let us go and kill him. And in verse 7, David looks at his men and he says, With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. And then what happens next is absolutely unreal. Because all 3,000 of Saul's men are waiting outside of this cave, waiting for Saul to king, back, king Saul to come back from having private time. And, right, and just as one of Saul's men finishes helping Saul back up onto his mule, up at that very same cave is David, who yells, Hey, Saul, look over here. And verse 8 tells us that when David came out of the cave, he called to Saul. He said, My lord and my king. And immediately, every single person in Saul's army, every single soldier knew exactly what had just not happened happened. I mean, can you even imagine this? They're all looking up at David in awe, their jaws hanging open, and David, he says this in verse 10, "This day, Saul, you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Saul, it was God, make no mistake about this. It was God who actually delivered you into my hands in the cave." David said. Some urged me to kill you but i i spared you not only did i not kill you saul i actually defended you saul i did for you what your own bodyguard failed to do i said to them i will not lift my hand against my master, because he is the Lord's anointed. You may not be acting like the Lord's anointed. You may be a sorry example of the Lord's anointed. But Saul, you are the Lord's anointed, and I'm not going to try to replace what God has put in place. And then David speaks some words that I hope and pray ring in every single one of our ears every single time we feel angry, isolated, or afraid. And the ways of God are most unappealing and seemingly irrelevant because David says this in verse 12. He says, May the Lord judge between you and me. Saul, I'm not your judge. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me because you have wronged me. Make no mistake about that. But my hand, my hand, will not touch you. What can Saul do? I mean, he is completely humiliated. His bodyguard is completely humiliated. His soldiers are completely in awe. Saul knows that at any moment, they might just declare David to be the king because they have never seen anything like this. And so Saul looks up at David and he says to David, it's clearly evident to us today, David, that you are a far better man than me. And Saul gets back up on his horse and he heads back to Jerusalem. And seven chapters later, seven chapters later, a random Philistine arrow pierces Saul's armor and he dies. And David becomes the king of Israel. Now, here's what I don't want any single, any of you to miss today. I don't want any of us to walk out and, and miss this today. This is what I want to make sure that you hear. Do not let anger, isolation, or fear trick you into repaying evil for evil. The Apostle Peter, right? Peter who who knew Jesus. Peter who lived with Jesus. Peter who knew that Jesus was unjustly arrested, unjustly crucified. Who knew Jesus was innocent and sinless. Peter who saw how Jesus responded every time he was gossiped about. Every time he was mocked. Every time he was oppressed. Peter writes some incredible words to a group of followers of Jesus who are being persecuted and who are being attacked. And he says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. He writes this. He says, Do not repay evil with evil. But Peter, that's natural. And Peter says, I know, but do not repay evil with evil. But Peter, look at what they've done to me. Look at what they said about me. And Peter says, I know. Do not repay evil with evil or insult." With insult. Not even on social media? No, not even on social media. On the contrary, Peter says, repay evil with blessing. Because to this, he says, you were called. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, Peter's saying, listen, this is what we are called to. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. And then Peter does something very interesting and he connects this idea of do not repay evil with evil, but repay evil with a blessing so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter connects this idea in the text to something that David wrote from this very event in David's life. When David writes these words in Psalm 34, Peter quotes David and says this up on the screen. whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech he must turn from evil and do good he must seek peace and pursue it and where in the world where in the world did peter get this crazy idea of telling everyone not to return evil for evil but to return evil with a blessing To return evil with good. Where did Peter get this idea from? He got it from watching Jesus. He remembered those words that Jesus said that every single one of us have heard. That we could probably quote from from memory. When Jesus said this, he said, you have heard that it was said. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Because that's David's world. right? That's David's world. But Jesus says, but I tell you. And then he turns everything upside down. And he says, instead of responding with evil for evil, instead of returning evil for evil, Jesus says, love your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. See, the truth is this. Refusing to respond in like kind, refusing to respond in like kind, if you are a follower of Jesus, Refusing to repay evil for evil, refusing to respond in like kind, that may be the most Christ-like, that may be the most Jesus-like thing that you ever do in the course of your life. So I want to end with this very simple question. What's the story that you want to tell? What's the story that you want to tell about this season of your life right now where your plans have not gone the way that you expected them to go? Where life hasn't turned out as you anticipated? Where the emotions of anger, isolation, and fear are pushing you for a response? What's the story that you want to tell? Do you really want your story to be, and I got even"? Do you really want your story to be hey, and I just returned evil for evil? I just I just became just like the people that I don't even like. Is that really the story that you want to tell? And see, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself right now, okay, Joe, everything everything I'm not arguing'm not in fact'm saying everything you're saying is true. It's so true. In fact, it's so true. I wish I would have heard this a year ago. I wish I would have heard this five years ago. Because, see, the truth is, I fell for it. I I fell for it. I allowed allowed anger, isolation, and fear to trick me into responding with evil for evil. And, see, now that's my story. And now I am angrier, and I am lonelier, and I am scarier now than I have ever been. And, see, if that is you today, if that is your story today, then please, please, please hear what I'm about to say because in front of you right now is the cross of your Savior Jesus Christ. And He is more than willing He is more than able to take away not only your anger, your isolation, and your fear but also the guilt also the guilt that comes from acting out ...in those situations. Because see, Jesus was the hero of David's story... ...and Jesus is the hero of your story. Because in every situation... ...in every circumstance... ...Jesus has given you exactly what it is... ...that you need in life in this world. He has given to you the Holy Spirit... ...to lead you and to guide you and to strengthen you... ...and he's given to you his cross to remind you of his grace and his forgiveness and his redemption in your life. Jesus has given you everything you need in every single part of your story. And that's why we call him Savior. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, you see our hearts. Father, you know for each one of us, you know our hurts, you know our pain. Father, you know who and what we blame for the hurts and the pain that we actually experience in this life. And Father, one of the things that we are reminded of this morning in your word is that you're not telling us that we're wrong. And so, Father, as we wrap up this series together on the life of David, as we have seen each week how the hero of the story is not David, but it's your son. The same one who is the hero of our story. Father, I pray that for many of us this morning, that today would actually be a beginning. That today we would begin to build our lives on the truth of your word, that Holy Spirit, that you would live inside of us, that you would empower us to live the way that Jesus lived, the way that our Savior lived, and not return evil for evil, but instead return evil with a blessing. And Father, for those of us who are here today and who who carry the burden of guilt and shame, for the way anger, isolation, and fear have tricked us into responding in our past, Father, for us, we look to the cross of your Son, and we ask that you hear us as we confess our sin to you. Jesus, we know that you are the only one who can both forgive but who can also redeem the brokenness that sin, the brokenness that our sin causes in life. That you are the only one in this life that can actually put all of the brokenness back together again, Jesus. We know we can't do that. We know that only you can do that. And just as you asked your Father to forgive us Jesus, this morning we also hear your voice declaring to each and every one of us today that our sin, it is truly forgiven because of your death and your resurrection. And Jesus, we thank you for giving to each and every one of us what life in this world could never give through your grace. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray.